Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked to the back of Canto 7 of Purgatorio. We are at an unusual spot. Here we've come over a little ridge that wasn't very steep to get up with Sordello, Virgil, and the Pilgrim Dante, and now we're staring down into a dale or a bowl or a lap in the mountains that is beautiful and has an unbelievable place pleasing aroma. This place is full, as we will see, of figures of great historical import, and as such, it forms a giant chunk at the back of Canto 7 of Purgatorio. There is no way for me to break this down into smaller passages. We're going to have then two episodes on this long passage, lines 82 through 136 of Canto 7 of Purgatorio. This is my English translation, as always, of the Medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, Mark Scarborough, bro, not Scarborough, like the fair, or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off, read along, make comments, continue the conversation with me, whatever you want. In this episode, we're going to do a read-through of the passage, and we're going to skim it and talk through it. I'll talk to you more about this after we read it. And then in the next episode of our podcast, we're going to delve into some interpretive questions. So let's just get started with the veil of kings ahead of us. I saw souls singing Salve Regina, and seated in the verdant grass and among the flowers, these souls hadn't been visible outside of that valley. Even before the last little bit of the sun heads for its nest, began the Mantuan who'd led us there, don't ask me to walk down and be your guide among them. From this embankment, you'll know their characteristic gestures and faces better than if you were down among them. The one sitting up highest with the look of someone who dodged doing what he should have done and whose mouth doesn't move with the others in song was the Emperor Rudolph, who might have been able to salve the wounds that have brought death to Italy. It's really late for another to resurrect her. That guy, who has the look as if he's comforting the emperor, ruled the land where the waters are born that the Moldau takes to the Elba and the Elba onto the sea. His name was Ottokar, and he was a better man in diapers than his bearded son Wenceslas, who feeds on lust and indolence. The one with the nose that seems so narrow and is caught up in discussions with the one with such a kindly face... He died while fleeing, that is, while deflowering the lily. Check out how he beats his chest. And look how that other one sighs, even as he lets his cheek rest in the palm of his hand. Those guys are the father and the father-in-law of the plague of France. They know his life is vice and wickedness, which is why grief seems to run through them like a lance. The one who's so burly and tall, who's singing along with the guy with such a manly nose, was suited up with a cord of every honor. And if the one had succeeded him, I mean the young kid sitting behind him, 
then that worth would have been poured from one vessel to another. That sort of thing can't be said of other heirs. James and Frederick have their own kingdoms. Neither possesses a better bloodline. Human worth rarely rises up branch by branch. The one who bestows it does so on purpose, so it must be asked of him. My words apply both to that big-nosed guy and to the other one, that Pedro, who sings with him, while Apulia and Provence are brought to such sorrow. In every way, the seed is inferior to the plant, so that Constance may boast more about her husband than Beatrice or Margaret may of theirs. See the king of the simple life sitting over there, that Henry of England? His tree may well branch into better progeny. And lowest among them all, his eyes lifted up as he sits on the ground, is William the Marchese, because of whom Alessandria and its war caused Monferrato and Canavese to cry out in sorrow. Almost everyone here is from the late 1200s, and if we accept the fact that perhaps Purgatorio is being written in 1315, 16, somewhere along in there, these figures are just behind it in the late 1200s. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read this passage again, and this time gloss it. Read it as if all the historical material were packed into the poetry. In other words, I'm going to make a mess of Dante's poetry, and it's not going to sound very poetic, because I'm going to be constantly talking through what happens in this passage. Then at the end of that, I'd like to raise some questions that we can answer and come toward, I don't know if we can answer them, we come toward them in the next episode of the podcast. So let's read it again, fully filled in with its historical details. I saw souls singing Salve Regina, a well-known antiphon, that is, a short chant used widely in Gregorian chants, favored by St. Ambrose. This one is the antiphon usually sung at Vespers, that is, at evening prayers, as here the sun is setting. It's addressed to the Virgin Mary, and it's addressed as if the singers are in exile and they are seated in the verdant grass and among the flowers. These souls hadn't been visible outside of that valley. Even before the last little bit of the sun heads for its nest, roosting imagery, nice. And there's a lot about eggs, <laughs> about progeny in this passage. Before the sun heads for its nest, began the Mantuan, that is, Sordelo, who'd led us there, don't ask me to walk down and be your guide among them. From this embankment, you'll know their characteristic gestures and faces better than if you were down in the dale among them. The one sitting up highest with the look of someone who dodged doing what he should have done and whose mouth doesn't move with the others in song was the Emperor Rudolf, that is, Rudolf I, the Holy Roman Emperor from 1273 to 1291 Common Era. His election put an end to the great 
interregnum that happened, the great interruption, the great between kings period of the Holy Roman Empire on the death of Frederick II in 1250. Remember Frederick II? He's down in the tomb with Ferenata, the stupor mundi, the wonder of the world, and his Sicilian court that courted Arabic scholars. When he died in 1250, a period of disruption happened to the Holy Roman Empire, and it was solved by the election of Rudolf I in 1273. We should also note right here that he established the Duchy of Austria, this Rudolf I, and that Duchy of Austria, we'll talk more about that in a minute, became the core of the Habsburg power, and in fact became the core of Habsburg rule, which as you know, will overwhelm the Holy Realm empire down the road from Dante. He is not singing, but he, as the passage goes on to say, might have been able to salve the wounds that have brought death to Italy if only he'd paid attention to Italy instead of paying attention to Austria and Hungary and other lands where Rudolf I did battle. It's really late for another to resurrect her, as the passage goes on. That guy who has the look as if he's comforting the emperor ruled the land where the waters are born that the Moldau takes to the Elba and the Elba onto the sea. His name was Ottokar, that is, Ottokar II of Bohemia. He was Rudolf I's bitter enemy. He fought him twice for control of lands. He fought him for the control of the Holy Roman Empire's crown, as well as territorial concerns. He was king of Bohemia from 1253 to 1278, common era. He refused in real life to recognize Rudolf I, although he's comforting him here, and he was killed in battle by Holy Roman Empire forces on August 26th, 1278, and Part of all those battles with the Holy Roman Empire caused Autocar's kingdom to shrink. It's a think of it as a north-south access kingdom through kind of Prague and Budapest. Think of it kind of running north-south through there. And in fact, part of the problem is that Rudolf I is able to take Austria away from Autocar II and thus find a seat for eventually Habsburg power. All right, moving on. He was a better man, Autocar was a better man in diapers than his bearded son, Wenceslas, that is Wenceslas II, king of Bohemia, and Rudolf's vassal from 1278 to 1305. Dante has very little good ever to say about Wenceslas II since Autocar has been defeated in battle. Now the Bohemian throne is in fact in vassalage to the Holy Roman Emperor. We will see Wenceslas one more time way up 
in Paradiso, where his name will be thrown out as a vicious taunt. Again, Dante has nothing good to say about Wenceslas II, king of Bohemia, who here feeds on lust and indolence. The one with the nose that seems so narrow and is caught up in discussions with the one of a kindly face, he died while fleeing, that is, while deflowering the lily. That is, he is Philip III, Philip the Bold of France, king of France from 1270 to 1285 Common Era. He was forced to flee after taking Girona on the Iberian Peninsula because he supplies in the Gulf of Roses, the part of the Mediterranean that sits right off the coast from Girona, though his supplies there were cut off and they were cut off by Pedro III, who will appear in this passage. So Philip III was caught fleeing and died while deflowering the lily because the Iberian Peninsula is considered an almost paradise. Decical land, so beautiful and tragic, because if you think Italy's a mess, it pales in comparison to what's going on over in Iberia at the same time. He's sitting there beating his chest. Sordello says, check out how he beats his chest. And look how that other one, that other one, oh, the guy with the kindly face, that's Henry I of Navarre. King of Navarre from 1270 to 1274. His daughter, Jeanne or Joan, depending on whether you use the French or the English pronunciation of her name, his daughter married Philip, this very one sitting here with the narrow nose. Look how the, he sighs this. Henry I of Navarre, and even lets his cheek rest in the palm of his hand. He is really disconsolate. And the next lines may explain why. Those guys are the father and father-in-law. Philip III is the father, and because of the marriage, Henry I of Navarre is the father-in-law of the plague of France. That is Philip IV, Philip the Fair, king of France from 1285 through 1314, king maybe during part of the writing of Purgatorio. Philip the Fair is never named in comedy, but he is castigated throughout. For example, he's mentioned very dismissively in Inferno 19 line 87 by Pope Nicholas III as just the one who rules over France. But he comes up multiple times in comedy. He is never named, but he is always treated with much contempt, Philip the Fourth or Philip the Fair. They know that is Philip the Third and Henry the First of Navarre know his, that is Philip the Fair's, life of vice and wickedness, which is why grief seems to run through them like a lance. The one who's so Burly, who singing along with the guy with such a manly nose, was suited up with a cord of every honor. That guy who is so burly and tall is Pedro III, King of Aragon. Aragon, the kingdom and crown. Oh, it's a very complicated history of the difference between the crown of Aragon and the kingdom of Aragon. But let's skip over and just say he was King of Aragon on the Iberian Peninsula from 1276 to 1285. We've already had a kind of reference to him because, again, Philip the Third 
died while fleeing after having been cut off by Pedro III's fleet. This Pedro III, or Peter III of Aragon, married Constance, the daughter of Manfred of Sicily, in 1262. And remember, Manfred, back amongst the excommunicated, asks for his daughter, that's this guy's wife, to pray for him in purgatory. So he's sitting here all burly and tall, singing along with a guy with a manly nose. That's Charles I, king of Naples and Sicily. That is Charles of Anjou, who we have already encountered in comedy several times, king now of even Provence. And here's what's curious, a bitter enemy of Pedro III of Aragon. Charles of Anjou defeated Manfred and took the kingdom of Naples and Sicily from the Holy Roman Empire. He is the son of King Louis VIII and Blanche of Castile. He is a seminal figure to Dante's understanding of political history. And here he sits in this valley and, furthermore, was a patron of the poet Sordello, who points him out without naming him. Curious that, right? Let's go on in the passage. If the one had succeeded him, that is, he's talking about Pedro III or Peter III of Aragon. If the one had succeeded him, I mean the young kids sitting behind him, this is highly debated what is meant here, then that worth would have been poured from one vessel to another. The best explanation, I think, is that this young kid sitting behind him is the last-born son of Pedro III. But the reference is unclear. Pedro III of Aragon was succeeded by his eldest son, Alfonso III, and then when Alfonso died, his sons took over various pieces of the throne, and in fact, the kingdom divided a bit after Alfonso III. We'll talk about that because they come up in the next line. So I think the idea here is if Alfonso III hadn't taken over and if this kid who's died young, the youngest last-born son of Pedro III had been the ruler, then maybe things would have gone right because the passage goes on. That sort of thing can't be said of other heirs. That is, that honor or worth would have been poured from one vessel to another. James and Frederick, James II of Sicily and King of Aragon, King of Sicily from 1285 to 1295 and King of Aragon to 1327, and Frederick, that is Frederick II of Sicily, king from 1296 to 1335. What basically happens is that Alfonso III puts James, his son, in charge of Sicily for a while, and then when Alfonso III dies, James II takes over the throne of Aragon and hands Sicily to his brother, who becomes Frederick II of Sicily. Very complicated political stuff. Passage goes on. Human worth rarely rises up branch by branch. The one who bestows it does so on purpose, so it must be asked of him. My words apply both to that big-nosed guy back to Charles of Anjou. Again, Sordello was a poet in his court, but strangely doesn't name him. Instead uses this curiously uh, condescending or even funny reference to his nose, both to that big nose guy and the other one, that Peter or Pedro, that's Pedro III, who sings with him while Apulia and Provence are brought to such sorrow because the 
end result is that there were bitter wars of succession because of Charles Anjou and because of Pedro III and because of their claims to the Provencal throne and then both of their deaths, which left Provence in limbo, which caused so much sorrow. In every way, the seed is inferior to the plant, the passage says, so that Constance Constance. This is Constance, the daughter of Manfred and the wife of Peter III, as we already discussed. The Constance who is mentioned in Purgatorio, Canto 3, line 115, by her father Manfred, so that Constance may boast more about her husband, Pedro III, than Beatrice or Margaret may have theirs. That's Beatrice of Provence and Margaret of Burgundy, two very storied women who bring large swaths of land with them and who married Charles of Anjou. First Beatrice, thereby he got the territory of Provence, and then after her death, Margaret, and thereby he got Burgundy, which means Charles of Anjou, by the time we count all of his Italian holdings, holds too much land to keep it in peace. Moving on, see the king of the simple life sitting over there, that Henry of England, his tree may well branch into better progeny. That's Henry III, 1216 to 1272 common era. He's the successor of his father, King John of Magna Carta fame. Sordello actually mentions him in one of the surviving songs or poems we have from Sordello. He mentions Henry III as a degenerate monarch in his song that we have. Here, however, Henry seems to be praised living the simple life. His tree may well branch into better progeny. That progeny would be Edward I, known for his piety, known for his compilation of legal code, and on a personal note, known for his obsession with finding Arthur's grave. There is no Arthur's grave. There probably was no Arthur as we think of King Arthur, but Edward the first certainly wanted to find him and claim his throne was descended from Arthur. So Edward the first found a grave and declared it to be Arthur's grave. And oh, it's a whole complicated story about Arthur, which is outside of comedy. But that's who that progeny may be better in the text. That's who that is. And lowest among them all, his eyes lifted up six on the ground, William the Marchese. This is Guilielmo, William, Guilielmo the Seventh. He was a Marquis of Montferrat from 1254 to 1292. I'm just going to finish the passage. Because of whom Alessandria and its war caused Montferrato and Canavese to cry out in sorrow. What does this mean? Guilielmo the Seventh held helped Charles of Anjou on his descent into Italy. He took advantage of factions in Lombardy to support Charles of Anjou and support his claim to Italian territory. But when Charles actually defeated Manfred, Guillermo turned on Charles of Anjou because Charles of Anjou wanted to assert complete control over Lombardy, which made, of course, this 
Marquis very upset. He tried to get control of Lombardy. He was a Ghibelline warlord, and he kept losing pieces of his territory to the Guelphs. In 1290, he marched against Alessandria, which had risen up in rebellion against his control. He Guglielmo VII was captured, and he was exhibited in a cage for a year and a half until he died. His son then went to war with Monferrato and Canavese to avenge his father's death, but it all ended up in an incredible bloodbath, which is where this passage ends unbelievably complicated. So let me just raise a few questions to save for the next episode of our podcast. Let's go back to that opening bit, the souls are singing Salve Regina. Why? What is it about this antiphon that is so important? Let's explore that more. Let's explore the text of Salve Regina. Let's see why they might be singing it here, these various monarchs, heads of states, and even marquis who controlled territories. Then, at line 96, why does the passage after the mention of Rudolf seem to almost get nihilistic? It says that Rudolf may have been able to salve the wounds that brought death to Italy. It's really late for another to resuscitate her or resurrect her. That line, it's really late for another to resurrect her, gets very close to darkness, to pitch blackness, as if resurrection might actually be out of the cards for Italy. We want to talk about why it edges so close to nihilism. We also want to talk about the humor in this passage. Big-nosed people, small-nosed people, cords wrapped around people. It seems as if there's a little poking in this passage, a little making fun of these monarchs here. So we want to talk about them. They seem to have been very involved politically, but to have neglected their souls and thus they're here. We're kind of told that early on. But why the humor in the passage? Why big-nosed people and small-nosed people? And then we want to talk about what is Dante's position in politics when he says rarely does human words rise up branch by branch so it's not lineal through families well then how is political power and political honor bestowed because we're living in an age of legacies of familial dynasties so how then is it bestowed and why is Dante here seeming to run counter to his age so dramatically and is it possible that people have overstated Dante's nascent democratic stance. We'll talk more about that. And finally, we want to talk about this passage in relation to Canto Six, because there we had this big invective against Italian strife. And here in the very next canto, we also have a break and we have this tableau of various monarchs who very much mocked up Central Europe in their reigns. What is the relationship between the end of Canto 6 and here the end of Canto 7? How can we see these two cantos maybe running in parallel with each other? That's all in the next episode of Walking with Dante. 
Until we get to that point, you could support this podcast by pressing the PayPal link in either the podcast player on my website or in the show notes. You know there are show notes, right? To every episode, you can drop down and see the notes to the episode. There's a PayPal link there, and you can donate to help me cover website licensing, streaming fees, royalty fees. I have to pay royalties on music. All this kind of stuff that goes on with this podcast. I would really appreciate that support because I'd really like to keep the podcast sponsor-free. Thank you to all the people who have donated so far. It's kind of been overwhelming. And even if you can only donate a little bit, that's much appreciated. But you don't have to donate anything because I'm going to keep doing this. So don't worry about it. We're going to keep walking and we're going to walk into the questions of interpretation of this most complicated and very difficult and chewy passage at the end of Canada 7 of Purgatorio. Up next on our walk, I'm Mark Scarborough, and we'll take those steps next time. 